If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Romans 3, 27 and following. You know, as I was on my sermon prayer walk this past Thursday morning, I was pondering the bit that you just heard read from Paul's letter to the Romans, and I I couldn't help but think of Paul and Tertius in a room together, Paul dictating, and Tertius furiously trying to keep up writing everything down that Paul was saying as the Holy Spirit brought it to his mind and heart. As Paul has made his way from what we know is chapter 1, verse 1, there were no verses when Paul was dictating this and Tertius was writing it, all the way to chapter 3, verse 26. And it's right there on Thursday morning as I was walking that I imagined Paul pausing. And he does it long enough that Tertius, getting a break finally from furiously writing, sets down the quill and looks quizzically at Paul, wondering, what's he thinking? And Paul says, would you repeat that last bit that I just said, Tertius? Sure. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and the righteouser of the one who has faith in Jesus, what we know as verse 26. Hmm. You know, Tertius, I've shown my fellow Jews, my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood, my family, that the glory of Yahweh Elohim is the revelation of the righteousness in the good news which is itself the story of the power of God, father and son conspiring together to overcome the guilt of the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike. This whole world that deserved his wrath, but whom he also desired to rescue, and that the only way that he could make all of us right with him was to take care of it himself. And so God, father and son, decided that this salvation, this rescue, this great exchange would be that the righteousness of God would be given and sin atoned for and taken away through the life and death of God and the person and cross work of Jesus the Messiah and that his death and resurrection would thus clear the record of guilt and make right all of those. And here's the absolutely stunning bit, Tertius. He would make right all of those who merely believe, who would just trust in him, rest in him, To believe in Jesus. That's it, Tertius. As you just read back to me there in that little bit. Call it a law of faith if you like. And it is by the sheer grace, the sheer grace of the Father and the Son that this happens, my friend. Freely given and generously supplied. But you know what? I think that my brothers and sisters, they're going to have trouble with this. They're going to really struggle. As good as this news is, Tertius, they're going to have a hard time believing it. There's just too much history that appears to go against it. Our religious history, everything we've heard in synagogue, at temple, from the rabbis, Jesus helped us see that we got it quite wrong. We hadn't seen clearly what was there all along in the law, the prophets, and the writings about him. Everything that we grew up hearing, sitting around the fires, The stories of Abraham, of David, 
Moses. The stories of how they came near to God, how they became and were part of the covenant people of God, part of the family, how they belonged, my friend. How do I get them to see that we belong, we belong by faith? How do I do that, Tertius? And I picture Paul at that moment kneeling in prayer, asking his father, help me, what are the words that you want me to say to get them to see this God? And just as Peter wrote, Paul became carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I see him leap to his his feet. That's it, Tertius. That's it. It's Abraham and David. I'll just tell them the stories, but I'll explain what they've missed all along in hearing the stories from the very moment that we grew up as little kids all the way to mature adults. I'll show them that it hasn't been works, that it has always been faith, always. This is the way that we've always belonged. It's always been the pathway into the family, into this big, warm, beautiful Jew and Gentile family with God as our Father at its head. So pick up your quill. I feel the Spirit. The words are coming. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? Now this is, This is a natural question given what Paul has just argued from chapter 3, verse 21 to 26 about our redemption and rescue coming completely and utterly through faith alone in Jesus Christ. An argument, remember, that has come on the heels of all that he has said about Jews placing their confidence, their confidence in Jesus? No, in the possession of the law and their ethnic identity. In other words, Paul is asking in verse 27, if it's all about Jesus and what God has done for us in Jesus, then my fellow Jews, where does that leave our proud Jewish insider claims and counterclaims? Answer, they are excluded. Now, this term excluded, it means it was used in the day of of like shutting a door so that someone couldn't enter your house or locking down gates in a city so that you couldn't enter into the town. It was kind of like, have you ever heard Katie bar the door? <laughs> right? It was, it was kind of like their version of that. And so Paul with a, I think maybe a little bit of a twinkle of mirth in his eye, but also dead seriousness, wants to communicate to his brothers and sisters that all human boasting is utterly out of the question in the light of God's magnificent grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Bar the doors! No boasting, no swagger here. And then he goes on to explain just how it is excluded. Now, you... You heard Carol read it in the Christian Standard Bible. I've told you before, sometimes it's really helpful to read in other translations, and so you can get a sense of it. So I want, you, I want to read it to you in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, verses 27 to 31. You can look on with yours, maybe pick up the differences, and we'll have it on the screen for you as well. Beginning in verse 27. So where does that leave? Our proud Jewish insider claims and counterclaims? Canceled. Yes, Canceled. Because what we've learned is this. God does not respond to what we do. We respond to what God does. 
we finally figured it out. Our lives get in step with God and all others by letting him set the pace, not by proudly or anxiously trying to run the parade. And where does that leave our proud Jewish claim of having a corner on God? Also canceled. God is the God of outsider Gentiles, non-Jews, as well as insider Jews. How could it be otherwise since there is only one God? God sets right all who welcome his action and enter into it, both those who follow our religious system and those who have never heard of our religion. But by shifting our focus from what we do to what God does, don't we cancel out all our careful keeping of the rules and the ways God commanded? Not at all. What happens, in fact, is that by putting that entire way of life in its proper place, we actually confirm it. I'd like to make two observations here. One about the law and one about the exclusion of boasting. So first, what Paul is saying here about the positive ongoing relevance of the law, that law having relevance in our lives, that may seem a bit confusing if you've been following closely the argument so far in Romans because he's had a, quite a few negative things to say about the law and he's going to have a few more negative things to say about the law. But he's not going to defend this positive statement here just yet in any detail. He is going to explain the ongoing goodness of the law later in the letter. We're going to get it really heavy in chapter 7. But just now, Paul is mainly concerned with being labeled an antinomian. Namas, Greek, anti-law. He doesn't want to be seen as anti-law. Someone opposed to it in any form or fashion in the life of humanity because that's not the case. And so he says so. We confirm the law. But again, more on that later. What he wants us to see right now as regards the law, in the words of Christopher Ashe, is that when we bow the knee to Christ in faith, we're doing what the law always wanted us to do. It's good in that way. Okay, number two, regarding boasting. I was thinking a lot about this because I think when we think of boasting or arrogance, we have a picture in our mind usually of someone else. And they're boasting. But the key here on this bit about boasting, I think, is that at times... We do it, and at times we do it without even realizing it. You see, when we doubt our standing before God, that's actually boasting. Because doubting our standing before God is, in fact, in re revealing that we think deep, deep down inside maybe, maybe completely subconsciously, that it is what we do that establishes a right standing and relationship with God. And we think, we think that our sadness or our concern related to that, you know, I know I should do more. I, I know I've been, I haven't been quite all I should be. We can think that, we can convince ourselves that there's a kind of humility in that. But really it's not humility at all. It's just the other side of pride. I can remember when Susan and I were members of a church in um, Minneapolis. 
and we were having our pastor and his wife over for dinner, and it was the first time we were doing that, and I was a little bit nervous about that, you know, because pastors, right? <laughs> I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was working at American Express Financial Advisors, and he drove all the way to Minneapolis out to our home in Woodbury, and we were having this conversation. The conversation was going back and forth over dinner, and as we sat over drinks in the living room, and I started talking to him about this kind of struggle in my life, this kind of like, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm doing enough for God. And it was like, you know, if you've ever shared that with someone else, it's like this really emotional, you're kind of opening self up, yourself up, right? Being vulnerable, like, like it's so hard and I don't feel like I don't do enough for him. And, and he just looked at me and said, man, you're really prideful. <laughs> Those things that you're saying, it's, it's just pride, I mean, you, it seems like you think it's a kind of a humility that you're expressing, but it's, it's pride. <laughs> I got all indignant. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm sharing my heart with you, like how bad I feel. And so now, on top of how bad I actually feel, you're telling me I'm being prideful, and so now I actually feel even worse. What the heck kind of pastoral counseling is this? But as I thought about it, I realized he was right because lamenting our standing before God is pride because we are still, as humble as it might look, we are still focused on ourselves. You see, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And it's thinking of what you do less realizing that it is not what we do that determines our standing before God, but what he has done for us. Hallelujah. Remember the mantra that I've said to you a number of times, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And, and it's what Paul is arguing here, Jew and Gentile, and anybody can get, on, get in on this. And remember what I've said to you about being a complete idiot? There is not one nanosecond in all of my life when God has looked down at me and said, ooh, that's impressive. <laughs> you see, the issue is our works, our works, listen to me now, our works are never impressive. Never God is not impressed with what we do. But, and here's the good news, that doesn't mean that he doesn't delight in us. When he made the very first man, do you remember? When he made the very first man from whom all of us come, he declared over that creation what? Very good. Very good. And brother and sister, he has never stopped declaring that. You see, our Father has no desire that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. He wants all, Jew and Gentile, to be part of his covenant family, part of his people. He wants all of us. So boasting, consciously or subconsciously, is excluded because we can't get in the family on our own by our works. And doubting our standing because we're looking at ourselves and our works 
Listen, that is a pathway to discouragement, depression, angst, discontentment, and a lack of shalom, of wholeness and peace in our lives. That is a pathway to a lack of happiness. And so Paul is eager to preach the good news that there is nothing that we can do. (laughs) So you're just free. You're free from all. You lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Rest in him, in him alone. Gloriously complete. Let all of our self-reliance and consequent boasting be excluded and ended. It must die in the moment when Christ did on that cross and he declared, the work is finished. Do not doubt the power or totality of the sacrifice of Jesus for you. The work of your rescue is finished, family. And all your boasting and all your doubt can be finished too. As we overheard in Paul's conversation with Tertius, we, we know that all of that will be hard for his Jewish brothers and sisters to swallow. And and maybe it is for us too, especially if we're religious, doing good works for God junkies. Addicts that need to be going through detox of the good news. And maybe we're like them as, just like they've long misunderstood their own history as seemingly pointing, as seemingly pointing to law keeping as how one gets right standing before God and enters into and stays part of the family. I can just hear them say to Paul, hey, listen, dude, wasn't it the case for men like Abraham and King David, the paragons of our heritage, Paul? Doesn't it say in our stories that Abraham was blessed and happy because he kept God's mandates and commands and statutes and instructions? Uh, Genesis 26.5, Paul, want to look that up? Because he kept the law, God declared him in the right. Because he did the works of the law, And it's the same for us, Paul. I mean, yes, we believe in grace, but you know, we have to do our part too. To which Paul now gently replies, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found, has discovered? What should we say that he's actually discovered? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. See, Paul deals head on with their history and he's going to clear up a long-standing misreading of it. What did Abraham, in fact, discover? Sure, I mean, if he was made right by works, then he would have something to boast about, but his boasting would only receive a human audience because doing works has never gotten anyone anywhere with God. And Paul directs them to carefully look. I can hear him saying back to them, right? Because that's what's going on here is an argument back and forth. I see your Genesis quote from chapter 26, and I raise you a quote from Genesis 15. Let's go a little further back to truly understand where the blessing of God comes from and how we're made happy in our relationship with him and how we get into being a part of the covenant family. What does God say? He says that the way that righteousness was credited to Abraham was because Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. He believed the promises of God to him 
about what God was going to do for him. Don't you see? Says Paul. Verse 3, Abraham entered into what God was doing for him, and that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. Okay, so this is a two-part sermon. This is part one. Next week in part two, we're going to hear more about Abraham's story and what he trusted in, and we're going to see how Paul will use it to further explain how we also, how we also belong by faith in this family. But for now, he's simply grabbing hold of a core principle, namely, Abraham trusted. Abraham believed that God would do what he said he would do. And this belief, this faith that Abraham had was credited to Abraham as righteousness for righteousness. You see, what God did in that moment was to change the status of Abraham. Not his character, right? That's going to take a lot more time. It takes a lot of time to change our character, to look more like God. But in an instant, the status of Abraham was changed. Now, Paul knows that his Jewish brothers and sisters, and potentially us along with them, might still miss precisely what he's saying here. We might think that what Paul just said is that there's a swap going on between Abraham and God. God, I give you my faith and you give me your righteousness. But that would get it wrong because that's still a work, right? That turns faith into a work that earns righteousness for us. And so to make sure that that misunderstanding doesn't happen, Paul goes on with an illustration from everyday life. Now, verse 4, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but it's something owed. Pay. So it's talking about an employer and an employee. But the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Okay, see, I don't go up to Judy Dobson and say, hey, I found my paycheck in my box. Thank you so much for the grace the generous grace of supplying money to me freely on, on your behalf of Grace Church. Thank you, Judy. And Judy would look at me and say, that sounds kind of weird. Because, you know, like the reason there's a check in your box is because you worked for the last two weeks or so, and so we owed you that money, and now we're giving it to you, so chill out. See, if being made right depended on Abraham working, then he would be owed. But that's not what happened in Abraham's story. You see, Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was a Gentile. Abraham was ungodly. He was ungodly. <laughs> Abraham lived long before the Mosaic Law. There wasn't anything at all that Abraham had done for God. And God came to him and made a promise to him and Abraham trusted that God would do what he said. So that when we read later in Genesis 26 that Abraham did what God commanded him to do, having already trusted him, he was merely doing what the law told him to do. Namely, believe the promises of God. His obedience was, this is fantastic, in Paul's terms, do you remember why Paul's, the, the mission that Paul was given, the ministry he was given, was for the obedience of faith? That's what Abraham had all the way back in Genesis that Paul draws out in Romans 
chapter 1, and we see now why. And based on that faith, God credited to Abraham his righteousness. Faith was not something that created an obligation for God. Rather, it was the means by which righteousness was transferred to his account apart from any virtuous behavior or ethnic identity. Abraham was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Have you, do you remember that? (laughs) That God just decided you're now a Jew. Just declared his New ethnic identity. Now make sure that you're seeing this. Because here's what happens. God is here. Abraham is here. God has righteousness that he wants to credit to Abraham's account. This isn't a swap. I'll give you my faith, God. Now you give me your righteousness. No, Abraham trusted. And this trust now becomes the means by which righteousness from God flows to Abraham's account. And Abraham is made righteous in God's sight. And this is the glorious surprise of the good news, family. We simply come with our hands empty, empty, nothing but trust in our hearts to God, believing he will do what he said he will do, and that fills our spiritual bank account with the inestimable wealth of righteousness and a new status as a son or daughter as part of the covenant family and the people of God. It's as if, it's as if we're driving along, you know, down US 150 and we take the left-hand turn into High Country Bank, drive up to the ATM there, and I know my account is overdrawn and I want to see just how bad it is so I put my little card in there I punch my code in and I'm expecting to see this receipt that has this horrible horrible overdraft the red of my debt and instead when that receipt pops out it shows millions and millions of dollars That's what God's doing for us in our spiritual bank accounts. We expect when we look at our lives to see deficit, deficit, deficit. And if we just simply trust in God, he puts his righteousness in our account so that when we hit the code and the ATM comes out, we see a fabulous storehouse of goodness applied to our lives. And we did nothing for it. We're over the top, in the black, spiritually solvent. It's not just that it's neutral. (laughs) He doesn't just wipe out the debt. He puts us in the good so that we couldn't be happier. Which is Paul's next point. This is what God has been on about all along. This is why he gives us his righteousness for our happiness. Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Likewise, David also speaks of the happiness of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Happy are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Happy is the person Yahweh will never credit. There's that word again, credit, with sin. Okay, so this is This is absolutely brilliant on Paul's part. He wants his Jewish brothers and sisters to understand that there's an equivalence between being made right and the forgiveness of sins and that both can only happen for the ungodly when granted by God. In my translation here of 
of happiness and happy is my attempt to draw out the meaning of the word that Paul uses here that we sometimes can obscure with a seemingly religious word like kind of blessed or blessing or blessedness. We kind of forget what that really means, which is happy. (laughs) Maybe you've... I grew up with really dour Christians. Like the worst advertisements and billboards for Christians that they, they just walked around. And maybe it was because of all those rules they had to keep in order to get right with God. No one was, I mean, it's no wonder that Sunday morning was filled with frowns when it's not the way it's supposed to be. The word Paul and David are using has to do with the kind of contentment and well-being that people feel about their relationships with each other when those relationships are peaceful. That's the particular usage of the word. It is what we would describe as being happy with each other. You seen couples like this? I have. And this is what David is describing about his relationship with his father as a sinner. You see, he knows that he has committed lawless acts and sins that should be charged to his account. He should owe something for that. Have you thought about it that way? When you sin, do you think, "Uh uh-oh, I owe something now? He knows that there's these acts that are credited in his ledger, bleeding red with his transgressions. And David is quite clear that he can do nothing about that, absolutely nothing, so that there is no peace between him and his God. And then quite apart from anything that he can do, his lawless acts are forgiven. In what way? Well, first, they're covered. (laughs) In other words... God has put his sins out of sight, no longer to be seen or recognized. Second, David understands that God is not keeping any record of his sin. (laughs) Okay, we all know how the opposite of that feels, don't we? You ever had someone keeping a record of your sins? Oh, there you go again. Doing that sin you did yesterday. Would you like me to show you how many times you've done that this last week? You've got some things to make up for with me so that we know we're in a deficit relationally. Someone who points out your screw-ups and your sins. That's not God. It says right here he's not keeping a record. I looked up because I remembered this. It says elsewhere, it's multiple times. It's about five times in the Bible, Isaiah, Hebrews, that God will remember our sins no more. Do you know that? You should write that down if you don't know that. And you might ask yourself, okay, wait a second here. Let's do a little theology. Um, God's omniscient, right? So he knows everything. So how can you say that God remembers our sins no more if he knows everything, which is what I think is so absolutely fantastic and stunning that God would say that he remembers our sins no more because he doesn't forget them. It's not that he's not aware of them. He is God and he does know everything. What it's saying is he chooses not to hold them against us which is stunning. He wipes them out and places us infinitely to the good with his righteousness. So what other response could there be than happiness, family? 
And there it is. Paul is now abundantly proven that righteousness and thus Jewish and Gentile entry into the covenant family and the understandable happiness that should go right along with it does not come from doing works of the law. For Abraham, David, them, comes from God. And now the coup de grace. His last point, the death blow to all Jewish and Gentile boasting and self-reliance. It doesn't come from circumcision either. Romans 4, 9 to 12. Is this happiness, this happiness only for the circumcised then? He's saying this because they've boasted like it is. Or, verse 9, is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. And, and we say this because we're scripture people and so we have to. Verse 10, in what way then was it credited? Was it while he was circumcised? Jewish, Jewish brother and sister, was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised to which they, they say, oh, I sense trouble coming. Verse 10, it was not while, they, while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. And there it is, the death blow. Don't miss the order. Circumcision did not give Abraham righteousness so that he would belong. That has it the wrong way round. Rather, circumcision was the seal of his righteousness. It marked him as righteousness, as righteous, displaying what he already had. It's like baptism in the new covenant, right? Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. And that's what Paul is saying circumcision was for Abraham. Verse 11, and this was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that righteousness may be credited to them also. Okay, so if the whole circumcised, uncircumcised, circumcised, circumcised, uncircumcised, circumcised, uncircumcised starts to get you confused, just put Jew and Gentile in there because that's what the markers are for, right? And so what he's saying is what this made Abraham was the father of all who believe and yet are uncircumcised so that as Gentiles we can do what? We can sing, Father Abraham had many sons, Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Stand up, whatever else you're supposed to do. <laughs> Sometimes silly little Sunday school songs have a tremendous amount of truth in them. And we're going to plunge headlong into that more next week to understand the ramifications of Abraham as our father. There's some really beautiful ramifications of that. What it means to be ushered into a family. Our salvation and rescue is not separated from familyness. But at least now, let's just note in the words of John Stott praising, praising, not boasting is the characteristic activity of made right, righteous believers and will be throughout all eternity. Family, do you not see that we should be among the happiest, praisiest, just made up a word there, the happiest and praisiest of humans? Because we understand the totality of what God has done for us, that no matter what anyone says, our enemies, the devil, or our own consciences, 
In Jesus, we belong to the family of God. Holy cats! Verse 12, And Abraham also became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul just wants, he just wants him to see, listen, Abraham's the father of all of them, of the uncircumcised, who also trust and believe and have faith in God. And it doesn't mean that you're now out. You're still in as the circumcised, but the way that you're in is through faith in God, just like the uncircumcised. Jew and Gentile, all alike, work of God, not of you. By faith. By faith. So, before we go, wrapping up, I want to consider something Paul has referred to again and again as he shared with the people he deeply cares about and loves, even if he hasn't met them in Rome. It's the center of gravity of his arguments that are meant to free us from the slavery of self-reliance and boasting, namely faith. Because if we're going to live this story, we need to understand the nature of saving, righteousness-transferring, sin-covering faith. Because words like faith and believe and trust get used a lot in our culture. One author says it this way, it is part of our nature to believe and trust. All life is a life of faith, whether it is faith in ourselves, our friends, our family, plans, people, ideologies, institution, even, even in forces beyond this earthly realm. Humans always look to someone or something to be an anchor that we can cling to in a world of uncertainty, even if it is the self, because it is in our nature to trust. Yet we must ask, what is faith? Y'all know the story of what we call the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, right? I mean, right now there are people looking down on us, right now, in this moment, cheering us on in our pursuit of God and a life of faith. And the definition given there is this. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this, our, by faith, our ancestors were approved. Michael Bird, faith is a firm conviction that what we hope for will happen. Faith is confidence about a future that to many observers looks futile. Martin Luther, faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace, which is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for that grace. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful and confident and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Or maybe it's the way you sang it. My soul will rest in your embrace. For I, for you are mine and I am yours. My soul will rest in your embrace. Abraham trusted. Do you remember how his story began? God sent him to a place that he didn't know. Go, Abraham. Where, God? I'm not going to tell you. Just go. And he went. He trusted. Why? Because like we learned last week, faith is, the power of our faith is not in its intensity, but in its object. 
Another way to say faith is I'm, I'm trusting in the faithfulness of God. That's what I'm trusting in. Because sometimes we even try to have faith in our faith, don't we? <laughs> but all such boasting like that is excluded. We have to have faith in the faithfulness of another. Next week, we're going to press more deeply into what it means to be pulled into the story of what God always meant to do to make us one people, one big family. Worship team, would you come up? As a means of his salvation and rescue. And we're going to add to our study Paul's writing in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. So please read ahead. We're going to keep seeing that the purpose of Romans is the glory of God displayed in a harmonious missionary church family, a church family humbled together under the grace of God.